ladies and gentlemen, Cardinal fans of all ages, welcome to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score. I'm Chris Grace. I'll be your host, joined every week by current Wesleyan Athletic Director and former head football coach, Mike Whalen. Each week, Coach and I will interview some of your favorite former Cardinals and find out exactly what they've been up to. Without further ado, it's time to check in with the coach, Mike Whalen. Coach, after last week, our debut podcast with the general manager of the Chicago Cubs, Wesleyan alum, Jed Hoyer. This week, we're coming back with someone just as amazing and just as impactful. Who could it possibly be? Well, let me uh, let me give you a hint, Chris. Uh, you've heard of ESPN, right? I have. Okay, okay. You heard of Sports Center. Right? I have. You heard of uh, the Last Dance production that just came out? I have. Yeah, so today what we've got is we've got a guy who's been involved with all those things, who's been at ESPN for 16 years, and has is, is got some amazing professional experiences uh, with ESPN that he's going to share today with us, former Wesleyan Cardinal basketball player Rob King, class of 1984. Class of 1984, Rob King will be joining us today. That's unbelievable. The guests that we're having to start off our podcast series You can't get them anywhere else. Before we get to today's interview, don't forget we want you to be part of this podcast. Send us an email at athletics.wesleyan.edu. Just use the subject line, Chris and Coach, Beyond the Box Score. We'd love to hear your questions and comments about what we've done so far and what you'd like to see from us moving forward. Follow on Twitter at Wesleyan's Athletics official Twitter page, which is at Wes underscore Athletics. You could also follow along on Instagram as well, or you can contact me on my personal Twitter handle at ChrisGrace82. Without further ado, it's time to welcome today's guest, who has been so gracious during this incredibly busy time at ESPN to give us almost an hour to discuss all things Wesleyan and all things going on at the Worldwide Leader. So at this time, we'd like to welcome Rob King. Wesleyan, 1984 alum. He is currently Senior Vice President at ESPN, and he is in the mix with everything going on at the Worldwide Leader. Former Wesleyan basketball player, and uh, hopefully someone who can get a little dirt on my co-host today and uh, make things a little uncomfortable for Coach Whalen, because you know I can never do that. Rob King is nice enough to be with us. Rob, welcome to our podcast. It's so great to have you with us. I'm so appreciative that you guys have asked me to do this. So very happy to be here. And yeah, if I really dig down, I got a lot on Whale. So, uh, <laughs> All right, man. All cool. right, man. We're going to stop right there. We're going we're gonna to press the pause button right there. Uh, as as, as uh, Rob and I were, uh, you know, we, 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 were, we, we were fraternity brothers, and we also ran a lot of the same circles. So uh, I know we probably got dirt on each other. I think probably, though, he's got more dirt on me than I have on him. Yeah, but I'm sure that your your choice your choice bits I don't want told either. So let's live in the now by all means. By all means, let's live in the present. There we go. There we go. All right. All right. Well, that's good to know. We're playing with an even hand right now. Rob, everybody uh, who is affiliated with Wesley and, you know, that comes back to the school shares nothing but great experiences. And, and I know for you, just having done some research, playing on the basketball team was a really big part of your Wesleyan experience, playing for legendary coach. Herb Kenny, and, and I know I would personally love to hear 
uh, about your experience playing basketball, how it shaped you, kind of how it made you into the person you are today, and, and maybe if you if you think of it, so, some classic stories about playing for Coach Kenny. Well, look, the first thing starts with um, when I was a freshman, my resident advisor was Dan O'Connell, and Oki was a great Wesleyan player, um, and he very quickly let me know uh, how cool it is to have that experience, a D3 experience, very different from some of my teammates in high school who were D1. Um, I knew it was going to be fun. I knew I was going to meet great people. Sure enough, you know, the freshman class we had with people like Jerry O'Malley and Paul Gallivan and Willie Granda, uh, you know, they are just people that I gravitated towards immediately, right? Um, we're all from very different places, very, very different people. I'm from the D.C. area. Paul and Jerry from Boston area. Lincoln Parker was from the Jersey area, I think. Willie Grander was from the Bronx. Like, we couldn't have been more different. Um, and then we had people to look up to, um, like Johnny Johnson and Vinnie Bonazzoli and John Green and people that just, you know, immediately created a culture of just different guys who love basketball are going to play at the D3 level. Steve Mazes, who, you know, is kind of an odd duck, but super brilliant and really gifted, like people that, you know, just sort of found a community. Um, and I loved that. Um, I'll tell you a quick story uh, before we even really got involved with uh, Coach Kenny was um, we had captain's practice. Um, one of the first things we had to do is run a mile, a timed mile on Fridays. And so, you know, uh, Oki, who was my confidant and uh, my sort of player coach, told me to be ready for it. John Green, who's a senior, told us to be ready for it. And so the gun goes off and Paul and Jerry and I just take off. And I think I ran a 517, which is the fastest mile I ever ran. And Paul ran really fast. And we kind of looked over our shoulders and John Green was running, trotting backwards. And Oki was like half running and we asked him what was going on. We got done and found out that uh, we were supposed to run that mile for the next four weeks and we were supposed to get faster every week. <laughs> Those guys knew that they had to get faster every week and they didn't tell us. So <laughs> right away, I learned that, you know, we had we had our own sort of cultural things to work through. Um, and then, you know, Coach George, uh, Coach Kenny, um, you know, he, uh, he, he actually met me when I came through to visit campus. Um, you know, he actually uh, was a guy who was super thoughtful, going to be gruff, gruff with everybody, uh, kind of had a twinkle in his eye. Um, you know, so many things I remember about playing for him, but some, most of them were from practice. Like, I remember one time, I think Paul Galvan hit me across the nose. We are going for a rebound, and I hit the floor, and I still think I broke my nose. Uh, but I was holding a practice, and Coach Kenny was standing over me going, on the eye or below the eye, on the eye or below the eye. Like, you know, he was trying to figure out, you know, he was, he'd t tell you things like pain is good, you know, and he would also tell you beer is food, um, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, and you know, we all just had our, 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 our side laughs about, about playing for that guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think the thing I would also say is that eclectic group of people, uh, you know, Howard Hawkins was a senior on the team at the time. He was from Chicago. I remember our first trip into Boston, we're on the bus, and 
Howard, you know, so proud of Chicago, looked at the Boston skyline and said, not a bad little skyline, you know, which prompted a whole other argument on the bus. Uh, it was, you know, and basketball kind of lives in the middle of the year, so you're kind of in it almost all year. That was a joy. That was a real joy, you know, on the other side of being a student and, and a, you know, a transplant to Connecticut. It was, it was pretty cool to be in that community. Rob, I know we've talked before. And um, I've heard a little bit about your recruiting process. And as you alluded to earlier, you know, you played with some guys that played D1, went on to play D1 and, and that kind of thing. You know, tell us a little bit about your recruiting process and, you know, why you felt in the end West was the right fit for you. Well, uh, a couple things happened. The first was uh, my junior year, uh, Dartmouth was looking at me pretty hard. And so my dad and I drove all the way up to Hanover and then came back through the, sort of the Ivy League loop. Um, and my uncle had graduated from Wesleyan in 1961, so it was kind of a courtesy visit. Um, so we got up to Hanover, and at the time, uh, Dartmouth had a player named, uh, I think his name was Larry Lloyd. Larry, Lord, Larry Lewis. Two L's. Larry somebody. Good player. Uh, and we looked at the school and watched practice, and it was pretty interesting. And I went to visit one of the dorms, you know, one of the freshman dorms. And there was an African-American kid walking through the dorms. And I, I, I was like, hey, man, like, what's it like up here in, in uh, Hanover? And there's a scene in the film Get Out where a guy walks up to him and goes, you know, don't know. You know? And I was like, ah, okay, got it. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> so next stop, Yale, right? <laughs> so, um, but at the, at the time, I was also being recruited by a bunch of other places. Actually, hysterically, like at one point, the Washington Post in a game story in my uh, junior year, misprinted that I was six nine, and immediately I got all these calls from like Nebraska <laughs> and all these other places. But uh, no, I had a few schools really, really coming at me hard. In the beginning of my senior year, I got sick, I lost seventeen pounds, and they all went away. Um, and I'd already applied to Wesley in early decision, and I got in. And I was kind of of the mind of like, you know, I've been sick, uh, I'm sort of pissed off that everybody went away. I got in early. Maybe this is just a sign that I belong at Wesley. And, um, and that's ultimately why I chose, chose to go to Wesley. I mean, towards the end of my senior year, a few schools came back, but by that time, like my parents were fairly convinced we could, we could swing it. You know, I heard from coach Kenny and really liked what we talked about and, you know, I just felt like the right place. It turned out it was. You mentioned playing for coach. Um, you know, I, I, what, what, again, I'm not, uh, um, I obviously know coach, he coached football for, for a little bit during my tenure, uh, at West and, and, um, uh, but I know that on the basketball court, um, it was kind of a cardinal rule that if you didn't pass the ball at least 25 times before you shot the ball, you were probably going to come out of the game. So yeah. you talk a little bit about that, 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 that side of things. Yeah, it was pretty old school approach. First of all, when I, when I first got to Wesleyan, they gave us, uh, Chuck Taylor Converse All-Stars. Right. That was our that was our shoe, our shoe contract. Right. I had buddies who were sending me like high end Nikes with, you know, the names of the team on the back. And we had Chuck Taylor all stars. So OK. And then, yeah, we would hear the term Bonnie cut a lot. Like there was, a, you know, you had to go this way, cut this way and pass this way and go this way and cut this way and pass this way. And, you know, we had guys from the Bronx who, like, Sean Dove, who just liked to jack it up. Willie Grandel, like, <laughs> like, people were utterly confused, you know. Um, so it was an education. Um, you know, but I also think it was uh, – there were a lot of things that were necessary at the D3 level, right? 
because the, the level of talent sort of coalesces. So you had to, you had to play D, right? You had to wear D's down by making sure that you were in control of the ball. Um, and it was frustrating. We had great athletes. I mean, Jerry O'Malley was 6'8", could do anything, but, you know, he was on the block and didn't necessarily want to be on the block. He grew up as a point guard. Um, and we just had to work through those things. I, I mean, again, I think he was a really good judge of talent. By the time we were a few years older, there were some guys that came through. There was a guy named Chris Brown who was a really talented point guard and coach sort of broadened his way of thinking about what Chris would be allowed to do on the floor. Um, and, you know, we, we learned, we learned a brand of ball that we certainly didn't play when we were playing pickup ball, you know, in Fairweather. Uh, but we learned a brand of ball that was, you know, that was unique, felt like New England level brand of ball. We saw a lot of it on the other side of the court. I got friends now who went to Williams and Amherst and Hamilton and they all, kind of talk about the same thing we didn't really get to see anything flashy till we played like clark and they just they just had a bunch of guys who just flew out of the gym and that was a different sort of conversation but by and large yeah you know he, he ran it like a 1980s new england division three program everyone who is with us right now you are listening to chris and coach beyond the box score coach whalen and myself are lucky enough to be joined by Wesleyan 84 alum, Rob King, for, uh, currently working at ESPN. Been there since 2004. Is that correct, Rob? Is, is the Wikipedia correct on that information? Yeah, I just celebrated 16th anniversary on September the 1st. It's a heck of a run. And, you know, before we transition, I've got so much I want to ask you about everything going on over there. But what are some lasting memories you have personally from your experience at Wesleyan, maybe even away from basketball, just your, your overall school experience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... First of all, I was an English major, and um, I didn't expect to be an English major, but I turned out to be one, and I loved the program there. I, I learned so much, and, and, you know, it was good to be an English major. We could take books on the road when we had road trips. Uh, but I took things like uh, operas, myth and drama, and Japanese literature, and a whole host of things that do inform what I do today. Um, I also spent a lot of time thinking about uh, just sitting on Foss Hill like so many of us do, and watching the clouds matriculate across the sky. I think about watching baseball games, you know. Um, <laughs> I think a lot about 380 friends of mine who climbed on top of uh, one of the buildings um, that overlooked the baseball game with a funnelator and water balloons and were uh, pelting people who were spectators at the game. Uh, they shall remain unnamed, but they know who they are. Uh, I, I think a lot about, weirdly, you know, moments where you'd be kind of jogging through cemetery and that piece knowing that you're you know part of that that grounds uh um and you know i happen to be fortunate enough to live only 25 minutes from campus um i will tell you that i didn't know that when i first moved to west hartford connecticut when my son was uh six months old my wife went out of town it was just the two of us and i thought i'll put him in the car and see if i can find wesleyan from west hartford and i was there in 25 minutes and I remember sitting with him um, on the on Foss Hill, uh, kind of just looking over the field. And true to Wesleyan, some I think somebody who was trying to join a Greek letter organization took a naked run all the way around Andrews Field and back into Clark with a few onlookers, you know, clapping selectively. And I said, like, "Yeah, you know, partly to mostly Wesleyan." Uh, <laughs> you know, I I, I see. Uh, when I go back, you know, I kind of see that, 
that ability for people to kind of cross paths if they're walking across the campus. And that's where all the magic happened, right? We're like, you know, these incidental conversations, um, you know, these sort of collisions of these friendly collisions of, of different people, uh, you know, again, that too has informed a lot of what I take with me every day into work. So obviously, I mean, obviously you could tell you speak glowingly of your experiences there. You don't regret that, that you chose Wesleyan over Dartmouth in the long run. It sounds like, uh, Based on based no, on what I'm not, doing so far, I don't waste, I don't lose any sleep over over that particular choice. I have since, as a as a member of the media, visited places like the University of Florida or the University of Cal uh, Santa, Santa Barbara or uh, Pepperdine, and wondered, huh? I wonder what would happen if I knew that the world looked like that. But I don't I don't I don't you know, I don't regret the Dartmouth thing at all. No. Yeah, sign me sign me up for Malibu. I, I think I would be all in. Uh... <laughs> I think I'd be all in on that conversation. Starkville was not as pretty as Malibu, let me tell you. But I think, yeah, oh, I, it's, it's a place. All right, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't regret any one of the eight years it took me to finish up there. So it was a, it was a good experience. It was a good experience. I don't regret it. Um, so I, real quick, Rob, I just want to ask you. Obviously, this has been probably the craziest time in your entire time at ESPN. I would imagine, right? I'm, I'm not assuming when I when I say that. Not close. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you go from having all of this, all of these licenses and all of these contracts and then overnight, poof, there's no content. So to sum up, what was the immediate kind of, was it like a graveyard there or was it just total scramble mode to, to try to find, you know, ESPN, the Ocho style content? Like what was, what was, what was going on behind the scenes when, when all of that started happening? Well, there was some scrambling, but I will tell you, we talked about this possibility in February I, I was actually on vacation when the world fell apart. I was in the lead with my family. But we'd already had meetings talking about the possibility of dramatic change or incidents in which we would have sports stop in any way, shape, or fashion. So our programming team was already well at work at looking at what lit, what was present in our existing library um, and really monitoring every league as to what their plans might be. I mean, this was an active process. We have an exceptional security and operations and human relations group that was actually thinking not only at our level, but at the Disney Enterprise level about safety and the change in which we have to work. And our and our production operations team, which for years has been really smart about creating remote productions, was already thinking about what would happen if we had to operate from remote locations. So uh, there was a lot of scrambling, a lot of real-time decision-making, but there was there were many meetings where we asked ourselves the what if, and so some of the early successes you saw came from those those conversations. Um, you know, I'll tell you that even as we sit here right now, a fraction of the people that work used to work in Bristol work in Bristol. I think we've created some hundred plus uh, stations for on-air talent to work from home. We've created you know scores of high-end uh, stations and cloud software to allow editors and producers to work from home. Um, and we learned a lot on the way, right? So we did the WNBA draft and the NFL draft in ways that were very unlike what we thought was going to happen. We thought the WNBA draft was going to happen on the Bristol campus as it had in years prior. And we thought we were going to be in Vegas doing a massive NFL draft show for ABC and uh, ESPN. And all of that changed. Um, 
I will say one positive is it forced us to work really closely with our league partners to get to some of these solutions. Um, you know, without the help of the NFL, you don't get to see Bill Belichick's dog, right? You just, you just don't. Um, and so, but a, a, there were a lot of decisions that came down to the last second, you know. Uh, I produced the ESPYs. And let me tell you, that show was not what we thought that show was going to be in February. And then even in the middle of the pandemic, we thought it was going to be about, you know, celebrating sports against the backdrop of the pandemic. Immediately after we found that there was a conversation about racial equity and social justice, that show changed. And so over the course of five weeks, a production of that size had to change in real time. And then finally, of course, like we moved a bunch of films that we'd been working on for years with pretty elaborate plans for when they were going to show up on air. We moved a bunch of them up into consecutive weeks. I mean, The Last Dance was supposed to show up during the NBA Finals in June. You know, in a perfect world, it would have been LeBron James and the Lakers playing, reigniting this whole conversation about who's the greatest player ever. And then every off night, we'd have an episode of The Last Dance. That was our plan. And that ain't what we did. Um, you know, we moved that way up, followed it up by Bruce Lee, uh, by Lance Armstrong, which is a two-part film that we showed at Sundance, but wasn't supposed to show up in 2020. Bruce Lee, Be Water, that was not supposed to show up in 2020. Uh, Sosa McGuire was. And, you know, we're going to move up a film on Oscar Pistorius that's going to show up at the end of this month on ESPN Plus, a four-part film. Um, so we, we furiously changed the pace of what was happening in the films group, just in the belief that, hey, sports will be back in full, call it late June, early July, and by that time we will have filled the gap. And as we all know, the, the gap still existed. There was still more work to do because it took longer to figure all this stuff out. Uh, it only happens because ESPN has a culture of yes. We, we, we've always said that there's a way for us to do these things. We have total communication among content, among product and technology, among sales and marketing, HR and operations. Uh, we spent a lot of time together. Uh, our executive team uh, is really, really a team led by our president, Jimmy Pitaro. We are very much connected and it's, it's, uh, it's a culture that has been in some form of this existence for the, for the 16 years I've been there and for the 41 years it took ESPN to be ESPN. So if any place could do it, this place could do it. But, uh, you know, we, we, we've been all, all been saying that, you know, it's the hardest we've ever had to work without question It is the hardest we've ever had to work. And right now, as I sit here, we have some, we had like 650 people in the bubble at the U S open. We got 450 people in the bubble at, at the, with the NBA, you know, we got, you know, scores in the bubble with the WNBA. Uh, we're furiously trying to figure out how to produce college football games. Now that more are coming back, how to do them in person and from a remote location perspective and just, you know, how to keep going forward. So the work still goes on, you know, again, big Ten's coming back programming has got to get to work. You know, some of these games are coming right back, right in the middle of, of, a baseball postseason that is busier for us than ever before because we have the fall frenzy. You know, we never had that before uh, with, you know, golf majors and all other kinds of craziness happening at the same time. So, um, you know, it has been an adventure. It's been a fun adventure, but it has been an adventure. Well, I'm sure coach would agree with me, coach, right? We've got no football. So if you need an extra crew this fall, (laughs) 
I mean, I'm sure I can clear up my schedule, Coach. I don't know about you if you can get clearance, but I, I can certainly get clearance if you guys. Yeah, we can we can work that out, Chris. Yeah, if you no, need to, if, sure. you, if if you need a sneaky good broadcast team, I think we I think we got your I think we got your back. Well, this is an audition, by the way, so I'm paying attention. <laughs> All right, good. good. It's good. It's good to know. Well, it's good to know. So, uh, I, you know, I, I definitely want to get a little bit uh, of insight on, um, you know, on the last dance piece, but but before we get to that, Rob, you know. 16 years, obviously, long tenure. Kind of take us through, you know, that that progression, you know, kind of, you know, where it started, what it evolved to, and kind of where you are now. Yeah, so when when I got out of school, Mike, all I wanted to be was an editorial cartoonist. And I actually ended up being an editorial cartoonist within three years of graduating. Um, it meant moving back home and then getting a job at the Washington Post and then being sort of a gym rat, finding my way to people who would say yes to buying my cartoons and then going to grad school at Penn State to actually flesh out a portfolio and learn more about journalism and start in newspapers. And I was in newspapers after grad school for about 15 years doing a bunch of things. Um, the path to ESPN started uh, in 2000, I'm sorry, 1997 when I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer, took a job redesigning their sports section and was asked to take on more responsibility with the sports team with the sports group so I left cartooning and graphic design and really got involved in sports became the deputy sports editor where I was Stephen A. Smith's boss in 1998 I've, I've known him since 1998 wow. um, yeah this is a true story like the way I met him was I got the job as deputy sports editor uh, my first day I was getting lunch at a food truck on the street and he walked up behind me it's Robert King Stephen A. Smith do you know I am the lowest paid beat writer in the National Basketball Association for a major metropolitan newspaper in the United States of America? That's how we met. <laughs> so um, so I worked at the Inquirer in sports right through 2000 um, and then uh, moved over to do news because I wanted to cover a political convention. The Republicans were in Philadelphia in, in 2000. Um, and then got a larger job as deputy managing editor there. And ESPN came a few times to try to hire me away. And in 2004, they made an offer I couldn't refuse. So I, I started in studio production. I was running Outside the Lines, which is our journalism show, running the research department. Um, did that for about seven or eight months. And then they asked me to assist on the U.S. Open Golf Tournament Pinehurst. On the other side of that, I got responsibly for our golf coverage. Uh, I ran ESPN News for a couple of years. Well, when it went back when it was a half hour repeating news network that was live about half the day. Uh, took on a job running the NBA coverage for a year, the year that LeBron James got swept with the Cavs by the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, and then took a job running ESPN.com in uh, 2007 when digital was going through a whole transition. By that time, you know, I, I, I knew print journalism, so that made sense. I knew design, that made sense. I knew television and video was going to be more a part of digital, so that all made sense. Um, and for a period of about seven years, I ran our digital and print group. Ran had oversight of the magazine um, and really sort of was part of this group that turned our world from a digital perspective from website to mobile. Like we really adopted this mobile first approach and redesign and did all that. And then 2014, I was asked to run SportsCenter. So I ran SportsCenter for three years, SportsCenter our news divisions. 
um, helped create Scott Van Pelt Show, helped create Sports Center on the Road, uh, launched The Six with Michael Smith and Jamel Hill, um, did a bunch of different things over that course of time. And then in 2017, I was asked to come back to digital because we were launching ESPN Plus and we were redesigning our app. And, you know, direct to consumer, we were like kind of the canary in the coal mine for the Disney company by going first into streaming. So I came back into that, uh, blitzed creek through that for a couple of years, pulled together, started running our storytelling group, which involved films and uh, transitioned the magazine to a more digital storytelling group. And then I took on this job as editor at large, which is, you know, a um, little bit, little bit of everything, um, you know, involved in the larger projects. Uh, like for example, I'm in, involved with uh, Colin Kaepernick deal and I meet with Colin and his team know call it a couple times a week on progress towards his biography and the first look deal that they have with disney um or i am involved in rulings on editorial content but i'm kind of all over the place now in big projects and medium-sized projects and you know brush fires uh which is there's probably one right now but i'm not looking at my phone uh so <laughs> so it's been a it's been a good run you know it's it, it's uh just been an incredible incredible journey um and you know when i'm forced to stop and think about the stuff i've touched it almost doesn't seem real yeah rob i just think it's so cool because you know we're all huge sports guys obviously right you know we, we wouldn't do this sort of thing if we weren't but you know i love all kinds of sports i love all sports i follow every sport i love tennis i love soccer basketball baseball everything i wake up at five in the morning to watch soccer and watch football all day etc but what I really love is the depth of the 30 for 30 movies, the depth of the outside the lines pieces. And I just think it's so cool that you've had so many different roles. And it sounds like you've gotten to do so many different things that involve a lot more depth than just casually, you know, uh, not that there isn't depth in Sports Center, but there's a whole lot more depth in something like that. Whereas back in the day, there would be almost like a little bit of outside the lines within Sports Center. And now it's a totally separate deal. So, I think your journalistic background obviously uh, gave you uh, gave you a, a, a great uh, set of skills to be able to work that way. But long question short, what is the favorite project, if you can? Can you name one project that is the thing you're most proud of or the thing that you've enjoyed the most doing? Look, it's hard not to say The Last Dance just because of the impact that it's had on everybody. Um, and, you know... That's pretty meaningful. I will also tell you though, that like every time I see Van Pelt on and I think about the initial conversations where he was convinced we wouldn't tailor a sports center to the things he did when he had a radio show and we were able to say, well, why not? Uh, I take an enormous amount of pride in that. Um, and I, I look, I've, I've been fortunate to bring some really cool people to ESPN, you know, people who are, Know, really making a difference. So when I see them on air, I get really proud of that. Um, you know, we uh, we've had some some journalism that we've done that's been really really powerful. Particularly, I think a lot of the stories we told around the Survivor Sisters of Michigan State, the gymnastics program, um, and the ability to take that everywhere from initial reporting to empowering them by having them on the stage of the ESPYS. Uh, you know, those are I man that. You know, that was a multi-decorated, you know, bit of journalism. Um, it's it's really hard to pick one. I, I think I have recency bias, though, 
in that, you know, people still talk about the last dance in ways that just make us all feel wonderful. Um, you know, my mom called like six weeks ago, she finally watched it, you know, it's, that's a, that's next level there. So, um, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard not to, it's hard not to think of that project. Just one more, uh, on the last dance. I just have to ask you, we all watched it, obviously. I mean, the second it came out, um, just dying for some content and that was the perfect content. We were all Jordan guys growing up, even though I was a Celtics fan, I was a Jordan guy, just like everybody else was. You just couldn't help it. But what I want to know is what's one thing that you maybe didn't know that you learned during that project, whether it was about Jordan or about one of his teammates or anything involved in the story? Well, two things come to mind. I mean, the first thing is I remember being in a cab um, heading uh, downtown in New York um, with a couple of folks who had been very close to the negotiations with the NBA and with Jordan brand and, you know, Disney and Netflix and a whole host of people that were really pushing for this, where it became clear, this is something we're going to be able to do. And it was really exciting, you know, to kind of be there thinking, well, man, like this is going to be a thing that's going to like change the company. This is, this is a really exciting project. But at the time it was really a, it was a project around that bulls dynasty. Right. And this was based on an idea that the NBA had after seeing a similar documentary about the 1985 Edmonton Oilers, right? Where there's total access with the players and got to see what their lives were like. And that's really what I thought this was going to be. That it was really going to be about the Bulls. So I think it was probably another year later where we saw the clip of Michael breaking down and calling for a break, talking about if you don't want to play, if you don't want to play like that. Where we're like, no, this is, this is a different movie, right? But we didn't know at the time that it was all happening, that the results of the interviews were going to produce what they did. And I remember being sitting there with um, our president, Jimmy Pitaro and Libby Geist, who was one of the driving forces of this and a guy named John Dahl, who also was tireless in working with Jason Ayer, the director. And we were all kind of looking at each other like, oh, okay. So this, this is really going to get us all the way in. Um, that was that was the aha moment, right? Um, and the other thing I think a lot about is I'd forgotten that Dennis Rodman had gone to WrestleMania during the NBA final. I'd forgotten. I mean, I knew when he needed the vacation. I remember that story. But I'd forgotten that, like in the middle of the finals, that brother like decided he was going to go and wrestle. And my favorite part of that episode is when, like, you have the, the camera shot, and this is NBA footage of, of Dennis trying to duck away from the media. Now, as a member of the media, like, I shouldn't like that, but the whole elaborate, you know, Dennis chase through the hallways where he gets into his truck and drives off, and you see the cameraman humping it up the stairs. Like, that is that was so amazing, you know? And there's there's a lot of that kind of footage in the course of, of the film where you're just like, man, they were, they really saw all that stuff, right? They really saw like Michael lose uh, at, at at flipping cards with you know guys in the on the on the in the, straight, in the administration team, and you know it was you know poor Scotty Burrell who's local to Connecticut, oh, yeah. just you know just the torrent of abuse that he took, um, you know it, it it's a uh, it's just it's amazing, and I, I find myself every now and then 
stumbling into an episode and I, I'll watch it. I've seen all, I've seen everything like you know seventy times, and I'll be like, eh, I think I'll hang out till the end. You know, let's make sure my name's still in the credits. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think one of the most amazing things for me was, you know, he, he, he's surrounded by pro athletes who you don't get to be a pro athlete unless you're ultra 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 competitive. But yet, when you compared them to him, there was no comparison. And that's the piece that I didn't really understand. Like, again, I always looked at him, I know no one wanted to win more than him and all that kind of stuff. But when you see just all the other things behind the scenes, that's what resonated with me that I was just like, man, this guy is different. Like, he is different. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think a lot about that season where he came back from playing the baseball and they lost and the shape that he got himself into while shooting space jam you know importing players into a court that was built by the studio so that he could kind of stay in shape but also dominate them all summer you know that's just that's that's legendary stuff you know it's legendary stuff and um i'm also really happy every time i hear somebody say you know my kid didn't get a chance to see any of this stuff and they didn't really understand understand it and we sat there and we watched together and now they understand you know that's that's when you you create something that's actually you know kind of making a difference for people you know not just in entertainment but in the way they kind of understand things um so it's you know yeah it's it changed our lives it just did change our lives so there's a uh there was a williams guy that worked on the project too right Who, who was that i don't remember (laughs) <laughs> oh there it is there it is there's that there's that inside humor that i that i've been waiting for this whole interview uh, rob that was the first bubble that space jam shoot that was the original all bubble all i was gonna ask rob was have you told him that we've beaten him seven times in a row in football lately you know it's funny i, I don't i don't know that i've had a chance to like sit and talk to that that, that guy um I know what you're talking about, but I, I I don't think we've had much communication. Okay. And I, you know, look, that, there's reasons for that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Nothing like a little, or a lot of a little three humor going on. And uh, listen, I got to watch the Miami Heat with Duncan Robinson, and I'm like, oh, you know, like, okay, could you, it's not all right. He shouldn't have been there in the first place. So don't act like you know <laughs> that Williams is why he he got to this point, like. It was an accident that he didn't go. Like he, he didn't want to be there the whole time he was there. Like, let's get that straight. Why don't you just say that? Like, you felt bad being at Williams. We can't, you know. Uh, you're the best. You're the best. I love it. That, that, I love it. That voice you're hearing right now is Rob King, Wesleyan graduate, 1984. 16 years at ESPN. He's really in the middle of just about everything going on there. All sorts of projects. I'm Chris Grace, joined by Coach Whalen. Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score, another great addition. Rob, uh, before we wrap this up, I feel like I could talk to you for about six hours. I have so many questions for you. But um, the last question I wanted to ask was, and, and again, this is you know a little bit of a guilty pleasure question, but what is the coolest single sporting event that you've ever attended? And I'm going to eliminate the Super Bowl because that would, that would be an easy answer. But I want some, maybe something outside of the box that's the coolest sporting event that you've been to. Well... It's funny you should ask that question because right now the USGA, as we're, as we're talking around, the USGA is a winged foot. And um, I was running golf in 2006. 
Uh, and Wingfoot was kind of the dismount to that season. Um, the start of the season was uh, the match play uh, and the Costa. And I walked with Tiger when he beat Stephen Ames 9-8. and eight. And um, it was uh, a legendary butt-whipping. I mean, you know, where the ball was finishing up and the sound of the putts hitting the... Because you got to understand, like, match play at La Costa, you don't have a bazillion fans, right? It's sort of a moderated thing, and there's so many match, matches that people are spread out. Um, and we'd done television early because of the West, we we're in the West Coast. So there's a whole block of time where we could do nothing but just go watch the golf. And um, yeah, I was, that moment of dominance was utterly amazing. Um, you know, on the other side of the season there, I was there uh, in our production trucks uh, when Phil went awry on 18. Mm. And I can tell you that that day, the feeling at the start of the day was it was a coronation, right? People were just overjoyed. Phil was going to win. You know, New York fans love Phil. Um, and I remember, <laughs> I remember the mood around our production area was one of panic because um, 18 hole Monday playoffs are just a whole another day of work that people aren't really looking forward to. <laughs> and, um, you know, to be perfectly honest, I was in the middle of the bad dad trifecta that year. I, I had missed my son's birthday for the Masters because he's born April 9th. And, of course, I was at the U.S. Open on Father's Day. Um, and the third part of the bad dad trifecta, by that time I moved on to NBA coverage and I was in Miami for Christmas Day. Uh, so my lead producer on golf also was a new father to his son. And we were like, look, I, we just got to be home on Monday. So, like, you know, love you, Phil, but, like, you know, you, you can't force a playoff. Um, and I just remember those bookends of, you know, starting off with like Tiger just being amazingly glorious and Phil having this moment of defeat. That season of covering golf was, was 2006 was one of my favorite years being in sports. Um, and I will say like every year, every year when I go to the college football championship game, I think it's the coolest thing there is. I, I, I really do. I mean, I, I think, um, particularly the Clemson-Alabama games when you're on the field. Like, I could tell the first time I saw Trevor Lawrence warming up that that dude, that dude's different. Yep. I can also tell you that the year that we were in Santa Clara for Clemson-Alabama, in the second half of that game, I was invited by a friend who works at the NFL Network to come up to their booth. So I went up to their, their box. I went up to their box, and their box was really the 49ers box. And you got to remember, that year, like all these guys, Jerry, Judy, Riggs, uh, Michael Thomas, uh, Trevor Lawrence, uh, Edward Dallaire, they were, they were not seniors. So you had a full room of wasted NFL executives furiously talking to each other through slurred words about how they could change the draft rules. Because there was all this talent that they couldn't touch. And that was a pretty cool room to be in. Like, you could see they were like, oh, my God, like, you know, Tua, like, oh, my, like, how are we – we can't, none of them are coming out, you know, and it was, that was a pretty cool moment, but you know, I'm a, I'm a massive golf fan and 2006 will always stick in my head. That's, that's all. That's awesome. I vividly remember that. And it was Ogilvy, right? Yeah. Ogilvy, right? Yeah. Ogilvy. Yeah. yeah. That was, that was, that was a classic Phil. You got to see all sides of Phil that day. And 
and uh, maybe maybe this week. Oh, it's, well, it starts tomorrow. So it starts tomorrow, and and um, you know, if he won, he'd be the first fifty-year-old ever to do it. The irony would be that he would be doing it without those crowds that love him so much, right? Um, and at the U.S. Open, that kind of matters. Like I would, I'd rather have Phil win in front of a, the U.S. Open in front of a crowd. He, I'm sure he doesn't care, but to me, that would be a much more magical right. moment. Just like you know. Tiger winning the Masters in 19. Like, imagine Tiger winning in November with yeah. nobody there, you yeah. know, not even family that you could hug. So, you know, we are in strange times, but we got sports. Well, not to put you on the spot, but uh, this is probably going to air after the U.S. Open is finished. So I need you to, to give me one favorite pick and, and one underdog pick. I'm just going to put you on the spot right now. So I've been, I'm on the record, you know, having said to people just yesterday, Wingfoot, wing we, something weird happens all the time. And so it ultimately gets down to, like, who's got the mental makeup to handle something just weird? And I would tell you that I got two people that I like. I like Patrick Cantlay because I think he's, he's a little bit of a kind of a, like, he's got shark eyes, right? He, he has, there's, he's just very flat. I like Patrick Cantley and I like Paul Casey because Paul Casey just has a great sense of humor and a great sense of perspective around the world. So those are the two guys that I that I I like. Uh, the, the person I'll be rooting for the most is Tony Finau, nice. just because um, you know you root for nice people and you're not going to find anybody you're not going to find a better dude. So those are the three names I throw out. You know. Um, it's funny, true and true. For years, when I was in sports center meetings, every time that question was asked, I would say it's going to be Brooks Kepka. And I, I said it over and over and over again. And then when he had his run, I got I got the credit. Right? People were like, well, "You said Brooks Kepka before." I didn't even know who Brooks Kepka was. So you know, if either of my two early picks, I'm just going to like flex. And it's going to be on. It's going to be on the record now. I've got it recorded. It's on the record and. And trust me, if Paul Casey finally wins his first major, I will give you endless credit to to my uh, dozens and dozens of social media followers. Let me tell you, Rob. So you, the, they will, all all forty seven of them will know that the Rob King selected Paul Casey to win the U.S. Open at Wingfoot. I'm hearing a lot of Xander Shoffley chatter, though. I, I'm not sure I buy it, you know. And and uh, you know, it, it all all seems ludicrous the way Dustin Johnson is playing. But but I'm I'm going with my going with my my guy's name that's our P. Yeah. Plus, this is a course that that's not in the rotation. I mean, these guys never get to play at Wingfoot unless you're from Westchester. You don't get to play there very often, so it's it's a different deal for all the younger guys who have never been there. So it's a different challenge right. for sure. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Rob. Before I let you go, I got to ask you two just a two part question. Number one is, um, you know, the liberal arts education always under attack. Always yeah. people saying, "Is it worth it?" You know, all those kinds of things. Obviously, you've had an incredible professional career, you know, what would be your endorsement of the liberal arts education? And then what advice would you give for any of our current student athletes who are going to be listening to this broadcast? So two things I would say about the liberal arts education. First of all, it's most powerful because it's really focused on, on you, making sure that you are empowered to have the educational journey that going to make you the most authentic you there is um you know it fosters a sense of curiosity 
fosters an openness to all kinds of learning. Um, it is perfectly suited for people who have many choices in life. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with having some certainty about what it is you want to be, right? There's nothing wrong with saying, I want to be a surgeon or I want to be a banker. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is something powerful about a place to provide ways for you to find, to find out how you want to start. And I'll also say that's a really important thing to remember that the liberal arts education is the start of your path towards whatever your career journey is going to be. It's not the, it's not the immediate gateway. Like, you know, as I said, all I wanted to be when I was at Wesleyan was a cartoonist. What I had, what I, what I wanted to do in 1984 has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now, but they're connected in that I learned at Wesleyan the value of storytelling the value of communication, the value of understanding the value of people around you and learning how to listen, communicating, um, all that stuff wrapped up in the English degree and the various shades of courses that I took as a part of English major are a part of what I'm doing right now. The career choice, that has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. I just, I was, you know, dreaming of doing one thing and I've done so many more things as a result of Wesleyan's ability to be an open thinker and an open learner. That's what I would say about the liberal arts education. Um, the advice I'd give to student athletes is, first of all, listen, if you want to work in sports, there is a website called Teamwork Online that lists all kinds of openings. Now we're talking at a time where many of those openings are iffy or they're virtual, um, but there are constant, constant surges in ways in which you can touch the sports world um, at the minor league level, at the major league level, the profession, at the professional level, at, at an internship level. Um, I think the other thing is that student athletes should know that they already have in them what it takes to succeed. You know, uh, I've, I've driven by, you know, our athletic facilities on a random Saturday and I see people going in there to make themselves better irrespective of what coaches are telling them to do. I know what it takes to succeed at the academic level and at the, at the athletic level at Wesleyan. You folks are no ordinary folks. You got a lot of stuff in you, right? You're also the generation that most companies really need to get information about because irrespective of how you get there, you're going to be the one spending the money and making the, the business decisions that companies need to know. So do what you do as student athletes, be self-starters, right? Like, you know, you've got access to information across the web about every business that you might be interested in that can help you figure out how you can position yourself or present yourself as a solution to whatever problem the hiring manager might be posting in a job posting. Or you can also, you know, without the permission of the paycheck, reach out proactively to people who are doing interesting things. You can find their contacts easier than I could in 1984 just to ask them open-ended questions about what they know and how you can get better. I've had many folks from Wesleyan contact me directly just by tracking me down on LinkedIn and asking for 15 minutes. And generally, I can find 25 minutes, and I'm not alone in that, you know. Um, so just do what you do as a student athlete, do the work.
right? Do the work, um, you know, uh, do it because what got you to Wesleyan as a student athlete, uh, is what will get you to the next level, right? Um, you, you, you come in slightly ahead of the game. Listen, I gotta say this, right? You get to Wesleyan. If you look at your academic career from kindergarten to high school, you get to Wesleyan, you're 17 and all. Okay. Now, with any luck, you graduate at 21 and 0, but you're probably going to take an L somewhere in your sophomore year. So you're going to be like 20, 20.5 and 0.5. Then you're going to graduate and you're going to start taking some L's, right? You're going to work late hours, or you're going to take a while to find a job, or you're not going to be making a lot of money, or you're going to make, you know, trust me, it's okay, right? Between the ages of 22 and 32, you're going to be four different people. You're going to have different hairstyles. You're going to have different clothes. There's music you're listening to now you're never going to listen to again. You're going to fall in and out of love. You're going to have one or two different cars, maybe one or two different pets. Some of the people that you hang with now you'll never speak to again, and you're going to find some people that you love. That whole period between 22 and 32, I used to call the awful in-between, but it is a necessary passageway for you to get to the next level. And I would also say that the four years at Wesleyan, however you spend them, are going to set you up pretty well to get through the awful in between. But we've all gone through it, right? We've all gone through it. And that's okay. So the one thing that I will say is advice is do the work, you know, you know, be a self-starter, reach out to people. But it's going to work out. You just don't know how yet, right? And that's really important to remember. It's going to work out. You just don't know how yet. But you have a lot of resources at your disposal that you can actively participate in learning where the opportunities are. Very, very, very wise words from a very successful, good man. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Uh, Rob, it's been great. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, you're in West Hartford, so we're able to connect on a semi-regular basis. But, uh, you know, again, can't thank you enough for taking time today. Chris, you want to wrap us up? Only thing I want to add, Mike, is to send all of my thanks to our guest, Rob King, for being so gracious with his time today. Really appreciated every single aspect of this interview, and I look forward to spending more time with you, Coach, in the future, interviewing more great Wesleyan alums. But until next time, for producer Mike O'Brien, for the coach, Mike Whalen, I'm Chris Grace. You've been listening to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score official Wesleyan Athletics podcast. So long, everybody.